in your Bibles to Psalm 12. We're continuing our work through the Psalms this summer. If you're using one of the blue chair Bibles, it's going to be on page 452. And I want to start with this question. Have you ever felt alone in your faith? Perhaps at your business where you look around and at your division or your group of workers, you feel that you're the only one who has any side of faith. Or maybe in your neighborhood that you feel that you're surrounded by neighbors who are apathetic to Jesus at best and some hostile to Jesus at worst. Have you felt a change in our culture where there was a time where you sort of assumed people attended church to where today I, I assume people don't go to church. And I think for some you've experienced that in your lifetime. Do you feel for stories of our brothers and sisters in Christ, other countries where there are less than 1% of people in their whole country who are believers and where the hostilities to Jesus can oftentimes turn violent more so than here. So what do we do when we feel alone in our faith? One of the gifts of the Psalms, and it's a particular gift of the Psalms we've seen this summer, and and I do want to say I hope you've enjoyed maybe some of the lesser-known Psalms that we've covered this summer. But one of the gifts of the Psalms is the gift of lament. Now, this can be a hard experience to understand, and the Psalms is... Well, lament is not in many other parts of the Bible, and so sometimes it can be hard to understand. Lament, to put it quite simply, is the ability to cry out to God, why? The Psalms, and Psalm 12 in particular present a model and and give us the words and show us how to cry out why when we're alone. When we feel that there's no one else around who follows Jesus, when we feel there's no one else who has the shared convictions and morality of God's word. And so in this lament of loneliness, David gives us a pattern, a godly pattern. Because that's that's the thing about the Psalms in particular, is it recognizes the complexities of life and it doesn't hide the fact that there's times of sadness and depression. See, one of the reasons I believe the Bible is because I believe the Bible addresses the complexities of our experiences. And doesn't pretend that certain complexities like sadness don't exist. So we're going to look at 
Where do we find comfort in loneliness, and how do we communicate our loneliness to God in a way that is authentic, but yet is still trusting? Because I think, I think in general, here's our thing. If we, if we feel like we're complaining against God, we feel that we're not respecting him. And there, it's pretty easy to be a complainer to God without keeping in mind that he is God. But sometimes I think we practice it with inauthentic lament, where we just pretend everything's okay. And the Bible doesn't want that either. And so with Psalm 12, some of the psalms we've already done, especially next week when we do Psalm 13, we're going to explore how to lament, how to cry out to God in pain and loneliness. So our big idea, if you're following along in the outline provided in your bulletin, is this, that when we feel alone in our faith, we find comfort in the justice and faithfulness of God. So let's look at Psalm 12. We're going to start with the first two verses. And we're going to see the psalmist alone in his faith. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak first part of this lament in Psalm 12 is, is David looks out at his country, looks out at the people of Israel, and all he sees are a bunch of liars and hypocrites. He, he's crying out to God for, to be saved from this, to be restored from this, because the godly one is gone. The faithful have vanished. He looks around his country and he sees no one faithful to God. Instead, what he sees are liars and hypocrites. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart. That's a phrase referring to someone who's a hypocrite. A double heart they speak. David laments because he does not see people following God. The lament continues in verses 3 and 4. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say with our tongues we will prevail, our lips are with us. Who is master over us? So in the first part, he remarks on their activity, their lying, what you can observe, their hypocrisy. But then, in verses 3 and 4, we see it's not just a bunch of liars and hypocrites. We see that what the world is full with is proud idolaters. Here we get into the heart of the issue. Why are they liars and hypocrites? Because they have a tongue that makes great boasts, the assumption being about themselves. <laughs> they will say, with our tongue we will prevail. This is the epitome of a smooth talker. 
But even that is only a symptom of the true disease. And that's found in the last question of verse 4. Who is master over us? You see, at the heart of godlessness is the pride of self-idolatry. That there must be no God because in one sense I, I am a God. I am my own God. I am the master of my own fate. You hear the arrogance in this question, who is master over us? So this is who David sees when he looks at his country and he looks at his people. He sees liars and hypocrites and proud self-idolaters. Today, while so many things have changed since the time of David, many things have stayed the same. You only need to watch the news for a little bit to see liars and hypocrites and self-idolaters. You only need to live with yourself for a day to see in yourself a liar, a hypocrite, and a self-idolater. But David the faithful, David the forgiven, because there's plenty in David's life where you could call him all those things too. But David forgiven, us the forgiven, we see the wickedness around us. What do we do when it surrounds us? First answer comes in verses 5 and 6. That as David looks out and sees the liars and the idolaters, he also sees the judgment of God. Verse 5, Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. We see central to our comfort and our hope in the midst of a world consumed by wickedness is the justice of God. In the Psalms we've studied this summer and when we before were in Micah, we again see the goodness of God's justice. That he sees the poor plundered. He sees the needy groaned and under oppression. And when he sees this done, he will arise. He will stand in judgment. The first part of our hope that our God will bring justice on the un just. And that is a guaranteed promise because of verse 6. Right? So in one sense, God promises to, to arise and bring justice, but in verse 6, David reminds us, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. The reason the seven times there is, is it's a complete purification. It's been refined so much that you can, you can know that it's a pure silver. 
And God's words are pure in that when he makes a promise, he keeps it. And so when God says he will arise in judgment against those who oppress the poor and the needy, he will do it. When you look out in your community, in your workplace, and you see ungodliness after ungodliness, you can know that God will bring judgment because he said so. Again, as we talked about last week, when we are overwhelmed by the brokenness of our world, it can shrink God. And this picture of his justice reminds us how big and how good and how just he is. But that's not all God will do. That's not all where we find our comfort and our hope. The second, so the first is the Lord will bring his judgment. The second is that the Lord will preserve his people. Look at verses 7 and 8. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of men. An interesting way, David sort of writes the context of God's promise at the end in verse 8. So here's his picture of the world. On every side the wicked prowl. Again, the idea is of a predator on the hunt. As vileness is exalted Reminds me of Romans chapter 1, verse 32, which says, Though they know God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Picture is of a culture that celebrates what God calls wicked. But even though wickedness is celebrated, and, on, and the godly are surrounded by the wicked, the Lord will keep them. The Lord will guard them. The Lord will not only guard us now, but from this generation forever. This is the second part of God's promise in the midst of feeling alone in our faith, that God guards, keeps, and protects his people. Even though surrounded, God's people will never become extinct. Even though some may even hunt and prowl around those who love Jesus, they will not overcome God and his faithfulness. As I was reading Psalm 12, I couldn't help but remember one of the stories of Elijah. And in the life of Elijah, we see what this looked like. So I want you to turn your Bibles to 1 Kings 19. If you're using the blue Bible, it's on page 301. This, in some ways, is an illustration of Psalm 12. I want you to look for the similarities as I read the story. 
But I want you to remember this pattern that God, that our comfort is found in God's justice and in God's faithfulness to his people. In the midst of feeling completely alone in our faith. I'm going to start in verse 9 and 10. I'm not going to read the entire chapter, but uh, I may skip over a little bit, but I'll fill in the gaps where needed. This is about Elijah. There Elijah came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. At this time, the people in power in Elijah's part of Israel is Ahab and Jezebel, who you can read about uh, in 1 Kings. They were incredibly wicked, and they did hunt Elijah. And his response that they are seeking his life to take it away is completely accurate. So in verses 11 to 13, God God appears to Elijah. First he sends a powerful wind and God is not there. He sends an earthquake. God is not there and he sends a fire. And God's not there. And finally, God sends a low whisper. And Elijah knows that this means God. So he goes to the entrance to the cave where he's in. And that's where we pick it up back in 13, in 13 and 14. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Verse 14, he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. He repeats what he said in verse 10. And you can hear the pain in his voice, and he really believes he is the only one left And the only one left is in danger of the king and the queen. Once you hear the pain in his voice, as he feels alone in his faith, and that God's people is in danger of extinction. And again, there's a lot of reality in what he is saying, he's not overreacting. The king and queen are literally hunting him to kill him. This is a loneliness I don't know if you or I will ever experience. But notice the boldness with which he he shares with God his pain. But he's also going to listen when God speaks. So let's look at what God says. Look at verses 15 to 17. And the Lord said to him, 
Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mahala, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. So he says to Elijah, here's what you're going to do. You're going to anoint these guys king, and you're going to find a guy named Elisha, and he's going to be your successor. Verse 17. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. The sword was a common way to talk about justice. It was the tool of justice for a king at this time period. What God is telling Elijah is that the wicked will be judged. And it's a complete judgment. It's one that cannot be escaped because if they escape the first guy, the second guy is going to get him. And if they escape the second guy, the third guy is going to get him. So we see God in his message to Elijah when he feels alone and that God's people are at risk of extinction. God says, I will bring judgment. And it will be thorough and it will be complete and perfect. But as with Psalm 12, that's not the total of the story. Look at verse 18. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. God will bring judgment, but he also is faithful to preserve his people. Now, I've always been struck by the number 7,000 in the story. And I've always wondered why God chose 7,000. Now, I'm not going to get into this number times this number times this number, okay? It's not that, okay? But as I was thinking about 7,000, I wanted to apply it to our lives today. In some ways, 7,000 is a big number, right? So if this was a church of 7,000, that would be a large church. But if we were talking about 7,000 Christians in the Puget Sound region, then it starts feeling a lot smaller. What I think we can understand and how we can apply this to our lives is that the 7,000 number both humbles us and encourages us. It humbles us in that we should never assume to be the majority in our world, but it also encourages us that no enemy of the gospel will ever be able to extinguish the church. It's also a wonderful picture of grace. Because again, if you look at the description of the wicked in the beginning of Psalm 12, we should and could apply that to ourselves. 
The only difference is we've been forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. We don't deserve to be in that 7,000. We don't deserve to be in the people of God, but we are there by his sovereign grace and his mercy. So when we see God faithful to his promise, that he will always have a people, he will always be showing grace to those who do not deserve it. In fact, this story of Elijah gets quoted in the New Testament gets quoted in Romans 11. Let me read to you from Romans 11. In Romans 11, Paul is talking about how the Jewish people are going to respond to Jesus and how in large part they responded with rejection to their own Savior. And so Paul, Romans 11, verses 2 to 5, God has not rejected his people, meaning Israel, whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. God will never leave this world without showing his grace to those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. God will always be in the business of saving sinners by his grace and that will never be extinguished. And so when you feel alone in your faith, whether that's in your neighborhood or in your business or in your school, you can find comfort. The comfort that we see in Psalm 12 and in 1 Kings 19 that, that justice will be done. That wickedness and injustice will be punished either in this life or in the next and that God will always have a people saved by grace through faith in Jesus who died for us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Psalm 12 and 1 Kings 19. That when we feel alone in our faith, that we would lean on your justice and on your grace. That we would not lose hope. That our sadness would be tempered by the hope of your justice and your salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.